past few months, we've been walking through the book of Acts together. And uh, one of the things we've learned is that the gospel movement will not be stopped no matter what comes against it. But what we've also learned over and over is that you and I have to voluntarily align our lives to participate in the movement of the gospel outward. But I think there's a temptation and quite honestly a fear that as culture moves further and further away from a biblical worldview, then our engagement in the, for the gospel expansion is reduced to a hostile one. And we think of evangelism and telling people about Christ and joining the movement of getting the gospel out, uh, we often think that's going to be reduced to hotly contested debates. And the only way that I can be an effective witness for Christ and join him in the movement is to somehow become a, uh, a master of Christian apologetics and it's going to be contentious and all those things. But here's the interesting thing. In Acts chapter 22, where we're going to be this morning, uh, Paul, one of the greatest religious scholars of his day, does not engage in debate when he's arrested at the temple and gives a defense of his life and ministry. Instead, what he does, instead of engaging in this hostile debate, is he just tells them the change that Jesus has made in his life. All Paul says in this incredible defense in Acts Chapter 22 is, hey, I met the man on the middle cross, and this is what he's done in my life. And for 2,000 years, the most powerful witness for the gospel is a life that's been changed by the gospel. You don't have to convince anyone. That's the Spirit's job. Now, I know it's early, but if it's, this is so important, so if you're listening, say amen. Evangelism is not trying to convince uninterested people to become interested. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And here's a clue. That if, a, if the Spirit of God is drawing them to himself, then they're going to have spiritual interest. And if they're not interested, it doesn't do you any good to debate and argue and those kind of things that we're all afraid of. So we just avoid. Because guess what? The Spirit of God is not at work drawing them to the Father. And if the Spirit of God is not at work, no one is going to get saved. And so our job is just to inquire to see if there's spiritual interest and spiritual activity, if the Spirit of God is working on the hearts. And if there is, we just simply share with them, hey, the man on the middle cross said I could come and you can come too if you want to. The power of the testimony of the changed life is a powerful witness. And so Paul, one of the greatest scholars of the day, actually used it in his own defense here in Acts chapter 22. And the beauty of Acts chapter 22 uh, is this. We not only see Paul modeling the power of his personal testimony, uh, we see him providing a practical example on how to communicate. You ever, you ever sit in a sermon and listen and, and you walk out and you're like, man, that was really deep when someone teaches. You know what I've learned over the years, what that really means? What that means is people are leaving say, I have no idea what he was talking about, right? Like that was said, so I don't even know what he's talking about. Well, here's the good news this morning. Uh, this is going to be uh, probably the most practical simplistic message in the entire series. As a matter of fact, our pastors are working together on this message for all of our campuses. And I see you know, it's kind of, kind of a message, kind of a workshop, but here's the good news. For the last few months, we've been walking through the book of Acts and God is growing your heart to be on mission. You say, you know what? I desperately want to join him in the movement. I just don't feel equipped. I don't feel confident. I don't like arguing with people. Here's the good news. If you'll pay attention today and lean in, then you're going to leave equipped on how you can join the movement, right? So Acts chapter 22, we're going to start off looking uh, verse 1 down through verse uh, 10 this morning. 
So verse 1 starts off, it says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense, it's an important word, hear the defense that I now make before, you know, I'll come back and tell you what's going on before that in just a minute. And when they heard, Paul, uh, that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he's doing, he said, hey, we have something in common here. He said, I persecute this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were also there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And now those who were with me saw the light, but I did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now we skipped over chapter 21, so let me kind of give you the cliff notes of how we got to this place of Paul's defense of his life and ministry here in chapter 22. At the end of chapter 21, the Jews are furious. Paul's going in the synagogue and, and teaching, and he's stirring up all kinds of interest in Jesus, which was totally counter to what they were teaching, uh, that you had to obey the Mosaic law. And so all this uh, strife starts to become in the temple, and, and they begin to stir up the crowd, the religious leaders. And a mob forms. You look at all that Paul's doing, and a mob forms, and and so what happens is they said, hey, not only is this guy Paul teaching against the law of Moses, but Paul, can you believe this? He let Greeks into the temple, right, unclean. And they're beating Paul. This mob is the intent to kill him. And, and so word gets back to the Roman leaders. And so they send soldiers down there to try and calm down the mob. And so they, they pull Paul out of this mob, honestly sparing his life there. And as they're leading Paul down into the barracks. Paul asked the guy in charge to address the people who were trying to kill him just a few minutes ago. So that's what's happening, verse 21. And so, so they grant him this opportunity to address the crowd, and that's what's starting here in chapter 22. Chapter 22. So Paul's announcing that clearly he, he's getting ready to provide a defense of his life and ministry. He says, hey, I know that these Jewish leaders are accusing me of teaching against the law, and I know they're accusing me of bringing an unclean man into the temple, but if I could just speak to you for just a moment, let me, let me set the record straight. And in verse 1, the word he uses in verse 1 is the word defense. Paul said, I'm going to give a defense of my life and ministry before this crowd. Now, when I think of a verbal defense, the connotation of that word I think of a, a well-crafted, point-by-point uh, rebuttal or an argument in the context of a debate, right? Like it's this well-crafted kind of, and listen, here's the reality. Paul could have easily done that. When Paul gives a description, he says, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like you guys who've been trying to kill me, right? Like I don't know that I would have said that. I would have said, hey, you guys are trying to kill me. We're not alike at all. But Paul says, hey, 
I get your zealousness. I was zealous too. I, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, which was known far and wide as the greatest teacher of the law. And so Paul was well-schooled enough. He could have absolutely won the debate that they were wrong about Jesus. And, and the crazy thing is this. Paul could have done it using their Hebrew Old Testament. That, that's what it's alluding to in verse 2 when it says he spoke to them in Hebrew and they grew even more quiet. Like, oh, th this guy speaks our language. This guy speaks the language that the law's actually written and maybe we should give him a listen. So Paul could have absolutely buried them under the weight of his intellect. He could have done it using their own Bible. But don't miss this. The smartest scholar of the law on the planet, the one who can speak the language of the Jewish Bible fluently, does not launch into a, here's a point-by-point -point argument of why I'm right about Jesus and why you're wrong about Jesus. He doesn't do any of that. All he does, he says, hey, all I want to tell you in my defense of my life and my ministry is this, is the man on the middle cross said I could come and you can come too. Paul faithfully and humbly shares his testimony. And listen, if you want to join God in the movement, that's what it looks like. Do you know the power of sharing your testimony of what Christ has done in your life? No one can argue with the work that Christ has done in your life. There's no argument or debate in that. People are genuinely interested in stories of spiritual transformation. I, I told you this before, I, I run into people all the time and they say this, they say, I cannot believe you're a pastor. You know what I say? Me neither, who to thunk it, right? Like I did not win in my high school senior awards, I did not win most likely to become a reverend, all right? But you know what happens? I be, it opens up a door to, for me to share a testimony of transformation of what Christ has done in my life. And your testimony, you're not starting off with their spiritual deficiencies. You're not claiming any credit for any of it. You know, I just turned over a new leaf and I just became this better person and, and I've done this and I've done that. All your things, hey, here's what Christ has done in my life. And so, I told this to be incredibly practical. Uh, so what, what is Paul modeling here and how to join God the movement through the power of your testimony? The first thing is what should I be doing is this, is this is what my life was like before Jesus. So when you're joining God the movement, you're you're describing what Christ has done in your life. You're basically starting off and saying, hey, before I met Christ, this is what my life was like. That's exactly what Paul's doing here in Acts chapter 22. That's the starting point of his defense in front of this crowd that tried to kill him. Look at verses 3 and 5 again. What's he say? He says, I'm a Jew. What's he do? He says, hey, we've got some things in common here. right? He's building rapport. He says, I was born in Tarsus and Cilicia. I was brought up in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers. Now, remember what they charged him with? This guy's teaching against the law. What's Paul say? Paul says, listen, I know the law. I'm a, I totally understand it, right? I was brought up under it. I was zealous for God. These guys who are zealous that I'm up into the temple, I, I understand that, that zeal. I persecuted the way to the death Binding, delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest, the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them. I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus, those who were also there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. So it was, what's he say? He says, this is what my life was like before I encountered Jesus Christ. I was a Jew. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was trained by the best teachers in the law. I 
I was totally bought in. I, I was not lukewarm. I was zealous. I was a persecutor of Christians. So Paul's shining a light on who he was, where he found his identity, how he spent his time, where he grew up. And so these are Jewish people. And you know what they would have been in the crowd that day? Scribes, Pharisees, people who could either resonate with Paul's life and say, hey, that's, that's kind of that's the life that I'm living here, or people in the crowd who wished they could have resonated with Paul's. I mean, not, not everyone in the crowd got to study at the feet of Gamaliel, right? And so Paul's just building this bridge between them and himself. And listen, that's what it looks like to tell people, this is, this is what my life, this is what consumed me. This is what the priorities and passions of my life were like before I met Jesus Christ. So I told you we'd be incredibly practical this morning. So what, what does that look like? Just share with people. Here, here's what was the most important thing in my life. Before I knew Jesus Christ, here are the things in my life that I built my identity on. This is what motivated me before I knew Christ. That these are the things in my life that if you would have removed them from my life, it would have caused me great fear and anxiety. My life revolved around those kinds of things. Now, let me just lean into the most obvious objection I've encountered over the years in training people on how to share their testimony. And so what about, what about the person who, who cannot resonate? Now, everybody in the crowd that day, in chapter 22, they all resonated with Paul's story. Right? Like they're eating out of the palm of his hands and he's building a relational bridge between his life and their life with the hopes that Jesus can walk across that bridge. But what about if your story doesn't sound like Paul's story? Like what about if your story's not... You know, I used to kill Christians for a living, and then I wrote the majority of the New Testament. I'm guessing that's no one's story in here this morning, right? Not everyone's story starts off with a life of crime and drugs, and then he got in first grade and met Jesus, right? Not everyone starts off snorting pixie sticks and all that wild stuff that happens in kindergarten. And the church in America has not done us a favor because we have a huge appetite for sensational testimonies, do we not? We prayed those people up, and, and look at this, and they were a mobster, and now they're following Christ. Listen, praise God that his grace can save anyone, amen? But sometimes we celebrate the sensational testimony at the expense of the average testimony. But here's what I want you to understand. Everybody in the room who's encountered Jesus Christ has an incredible testimony because theologically, that's the truth and the testimony of a story of someone who was spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins and now has been made alive in Jesus Christ. That is a miracle. And secondly, the exciting thing about your story is not what you did. It's what Christ has done on your behalf. That's the incredibly attractive thing about the gospel. It's not, it's not your story and all the sensationalism or maybe the boring parts or whatever you're afraid of, those kind of things. Listen, the incredible thing of the gospel in meeting Jesus is what he did on your behalf. We're not the hero of our story. He is. Our story's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about finding new life in Jesus Christ. And so what are we starting off with when we're sharing Christ with people and joining God in the movement? Exactly what Paul does. Hey, let me paint a picture for you of what my life was like before I met Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing in verses three, verses four, and verses five. And so for me, my story, I would simply say this and describe my life. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up going to church. 
I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come from a long line of pastors and those kind of things, right? I didn't grow up. My parents were supportive when I did go to church. But when I went, when I was younger, with my cousins or my best friend, but we spent most of our weekends in my house growing up at the baseball park, not at church. All right, so that's kind of my life before I met Jesus Christ. So what's the second thing that we see Paul modeling here? So, he, so he's describing, this is what my life was like. This is my passions. This is my identity This is what I pursued before I met Jesus Christ. The second thing is this, we see Paul modeling this here, is tell people how you met Jesus. Paul tells them what his life was like before he met Jesus, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. And then immediately he launches into how he met Jesus, beginning in verse 6. What's he say in verse 6? Look at it. And as I was on my way and drew near Damascus. Now, on his way to do what? To bind up Christians to persecute them. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Now, so let me give you the cliff notes, the rest of it. Uh, People saw the light, but they couldn't hear uh, Jesus speaking, Paul heard that and then so I'll skip down into verse 10 and I said what shall I do Lord so Paul meets Ananias and then in verse 16 it says and now why do you wait rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name and so so Paul gives us kind of detailed description of hey this is what my life was like before I met Jesus verse 3 4 and 5 and then verses 6 through 10 and down into verse 16 he says I was traveling Damascus I saw this great light I Heard a voice, it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That voice was Jesus, I was blinded, and then Ananias took me and helped me understood my faith. Now, let me address something over the years. I've heard so many people say over the years something like this. Well, I, I can't really, I don't I can't really describe that for you, but but they say something like this. I, I've just I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Well, here's the problem with that, is that concept does not line up with the truth of Scripture. Listen to what Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you, this is before you knew Jesus, right? So this is everybody's story before you knew Jesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I almost said that today in the baby dedication. I almost turned around and said, look at these cute little children of wrath. Amen? They are cute, but they are little sinners. Verse 4. The two most hope-filled words in the whole Bible. Listen to verse 4. That's a description. Can we just all agree that's not flattering? This is what, this is, I don't care if you were moral or immoral. This is what describes you spiritually before you came to know Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. But here's the good news of the gospel. The two most hope-filled words in all the Bible. Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And so this idea that, you know, I've just kind of always 
been a Christian, there's never a time when I was on the wrong side of Jesus. Listen, Ephesians 2 says, that's just not true. So just like in a room at some point goes from dark to light, the work of conversion, there's also a point where a person was spiritually dead and they've been made alive by Jesus Christ. And so which leads me to the second common struggle that I've encountered over the years. The first one is I don't, I don't have an exciting story. Listen, when a person who is dead comes alive in Christ, that's exciting. But the second struggle in people trying to share their testimony and join Christ in the gospel movement is people freaking out if they don't have a time and place conversion testimony. How many of you at some point in time, someone told you this, you got saved and, and someone told you now, write that down in your Bible. That way, if you ever doubt it, you know exactly when and where you got saved. Anybody ever hear that, that counsel? Anybody ever heard that counsel? Listen, let me tell you what, what we think about that counsel. All right? <laughs> what that does is number one, that, that, that produces false assurance. Listen, the assurance of your salvation doesn't come from the recording of the experience. The assurance comes from the evidence of a life of following Jesus Christ. And so I don't care what a person's got written down in their Bible, if their life doesn't look like they've been pursuing Christ since they met him, then they don't know him. And But some people say, well, I don't have that testimony. Now, now Paul absolutely hadn't, so here in Verses 6 through 10, Paul's basically recounting what we taught back in Acts chapter 9, his conversion on the Damascus Road. And so Paul has a very clear salvation testament, a point in time experience. Paul absolutely had that recorded in Acts chapter 9 that he's retelling them here in his defense. That's a part of my story. I can tell you that I was saved at Riverview Baptist Church on January the 29th of 1989. I can tell you that... I was wearing navy dockers, a red polo, and Eastlands with no socks. Which, by the way, someone needs to bring back. Amen? No, they were not tied. They were untied with little pigtail laces at the end. You know, listen, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to ask somebody, all right? I can tell you that when I was at the altar, a man named Steve Wade came forward and said, can I pray with you today? I can tell you that Steve Wade was chewing cinnamon gum. True story. So if we've never met, my name is Rain Man, all right? But let me share with you another testament that I have total confidence in that it's not like mine, point in time, and not like Apostle Paul's, his incredible conversion experience on the Damascus Road. For most of his life, Billy Graham gave testimony that the finest Christian he'd ever known. Think, think about all the Christians Billy Graham had known, right? Billy Graham would say this. He said, the finest Christian I've ever met in all my life, the greatest student of the Bible, the godliest person I've ever met, is my wife, Ruth. You know what Ruth Graham said when people ask her about her own conversion? Here's what she said. She said, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home and I can't tell you a time when I did not believe that Jesus Christ was my Savior. Now, did anyone look at Ruth's life and say, if it's not written down in your Bible, Ruth, it didn't happen? No, everyone looked at her life and said, listen, it's a life born out of fruit, transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, is there a point in time when a person goes from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light, from spiritually dead to made alive in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, somebody said, well, I was kind of saved. Listen, being kind of saved is like kind of being pregnant, right? You either are or you're not. But for some people, the recognition of that conversion 
is more about a season of life or a time than a defined place and, and space. And so when we're sharing our testimony, we say, hey, this is what my life was like before I met Christ. Here's the time or the place or the season in my life when I encountered Jesus Christ, when I first heard the gospel and it made sense and I recognized that I'm guilty of my sin. I'm separated God because of my sin. Now, I told you I got saved on January the 29th of 1989, so I was 13 years old at that time, but the first time I ever remember hearing the gospel, I was 10 years old and I went to church with my cousin, my aunt and uncle, uh, they were shady. What I meant by that is this, uh, they would let me spend the night over there, but you, if you spent the night over there, they, they would say this, we're not dropping you off, you're going to church with us. And I thought, you wicked people, right? They called it evangelism, I just called it shady. I'm 10 years old, I go with my cousins, they had a little program, uh, RAs and GAs. Can I get a witness, any RAs and GAs in here, right? And I go in this royal ambassador class, and, and they're making pottery. And uh, I, I didn't know what to make, and so, you know, I just, I didn't make anything, and the parents are coming, and, and so I didn't know what to make. Now, I made an ashtray in a Baptist church. <laughs> True story. You know, they ask me, like, do your parents go to church anywhere? No. Okay, okay, we understand. We understand, Right? Like, what is this little clay thing? Or that's a bong. That's what, no, I didn't, I didn't do it. I, I don't know what that is. I saw it on TV one time. I don't know. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but you know what I remember as clear as can be? I don't know why I'm in an ashtray, but I did. I remember a man named John Williams, which, by the way, that was the first church I pastored, and he was still a deacon at that church. And I remember him holding up a diagram with the, the four spiritual laws. I didn't know what that was then, but that time. And I remember him saying, is, is Jesus on the throne of your heart or, or are you on the throne of your heart? And I remember for the first time, I, I raised my hand and said, Jesus is not on the throne of my heart. And he pulled me in the hallway afterwards and he said, hey, here's what it means to be saved. Would you like to be saved? And I said, I'm, I'm nervous. I don't even know what all that means. And he was very kind and humble. He said, okay, if you have other questions. And so, so here's what I can tell you. I can tell you the first time I heard the gospel, I can tell you when I met Jesus Christ. And for you, it may not be a time and a place maybe more of a season, but what is Paul modeling here? He says, hey, here's my life before I met Christ, verses 3, 4, and 5, and here's when I encountered Jesus Christ, verses 6 through 10. And so where was that for you, and where did you first understand the gospel? Parents all the time ask me, I don't, I don't know if my kid's ready to get saved, I don't know if they're those kind of things. Here's what I tell parents over and over and over. Do they understand the concept of sin, and have they taken ownership of their own sin? That's what a child has to understand, that there's sin. They've taken ownership and it's separated them from God. That's the starting point of understanding our need for Jesus Christ. So where was it for you? How did you meet Jesus? That's what Paul's modeling. Now listen, this is incredible. These people are going to kill him for teaching against the law, bringing an unclean person into the temple. And Paul could have started back at Genesis and Point by point, walked him through and said, let me show you from your own Bible how you totally missed it when it comes to Jesus Christ. He's absolutely the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy, and he could have buried them under the weight of his intellect using their own Bible. And his life is literally on the line. And when his life's on the line, what's he say? He says, let me, let me, let me tell you what the man on the middle cross has done in my life. This is what my life was like before I met Christ. Verses three through five. 
This is when I encountered Christ, verses 6 through 10. And then the third thing we tell people that Paul's modeling here is tell people how your life is different since you started following Christ. And we use that language on purpose, following Christ. And here's why we use that language here over and over. Because that's the invitation of Jesus in the New Testament. It wasn't believe in me intellectually, historically. It wasn't repeat a prayer after me. It wasn't take a curious interest in me. The language of Jesus over and over was to follow me. It was to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It wasn't self-fulfillment. It wasn't finding purpose in life. It was self-denial to find your life, losing it, to find your life in Jesus Christ. Follow me. Now, over the years, uh, in American Christianity, we've developed kind of this easy believism theology. It's kind of decisionism where people feel comfortable claiming to be Christians without any tangible, observable evidence in life of actually following Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine these early Christians who were giving their life and someone getting up and preaching a gospel and saying, hey, you can be a follower of Christ, but you don't really have to follow him. If you talk to people serving on the mission field now, they, they say that, that, that gospel, that easy believism stuff, that's only preached in America. We've got a gospel in America that people can claim to have Peace with God despite having no desire for the word of God, no fellowship with the people of God, no involvement in the work of God, and no commitment to the house of God. Listen, church, that's not New Testament Christianity. That's American Christianity. We're presenting a gospel that's all benefit and no cost. And so Paul moves right into this immediate change in his life. This is what my life was like before I met Christ, three through five. This is when I encountered Christ, six through 10. And then he goes to say, I didn't just pray a prayer and walk away and say, Shh, I'm going to heaven now, right? No, Paul says it was a, my life was radically different. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he, being Ananias, said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear from his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And a large portion of the book of Acts is a recorded history about the changed life of the apostle Paul. So Ananias is saying, hey, Paul, you, you've had this encounter with Jesus. Your life is never going to be the same. You went from being a persecutor of Christians to now being appointed to take the gospel all over the world. Now, can we just all agree that not only was Paul's encounter with Jesus not normative, right? Most of us weren't walking on some Damascus road and the light shone about and we were blind, those kind of things, right? Can we, can we agree with that? Can we also agree that the radical change of behavior in Paul's life was not normative as well? Most people's testimony is not going to be this incredible persecutor of the church to the most probably impactful human person for the cause of Jesus Christ and all of Christianity. There's only one Apostle Paul, but, but here's what I want you to do. All right, so if you're listening, say amen. The radical change of behavior that we see in Paul's life is uncommon. It's unique to his story, but here's what I want you to listen to. But it has an underlying cause that is common to everyone who gets saved. And the underlying cause that is common is a transformed heart. 
We look at Paul's story, we think, wow. We look at these sensational testimonies, right, of these people, like, wow, look at this incredible change of behavior. Did you guys hear my microphone? It's like, right? Powerful. But all of that change behavior in Paul's life and all of that change behavior in all these lives, listen, that, that's uncommon. That's not everyone's story. But the common theme underwriting all of that is a heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. Listen, Jesus doesn't just forgive my past and secure me a home in future in the heaven. He reorients the affections of my heart in the present. Becoming a Christian is not about a change of behavior. And so if you're here and you think, I, I, I could never get saved. You don't know what my life is. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't know those things about my life. I could never. Listen, here's the good news this morning of the gospel. It's not about a change of behavior. So that's what's holding you back. Just, just lay that to the side because that's not the gospel. That's legalism. That's the law. You know, I mean, Christian is not about a change of behavior. It's about a change of desire. I don't obey Jesus with the hopes that I'm going to get to heaven. I obey Jesus because he's reoriented the affections of my heart towards obedience. Now, is there still an inner man going on inside of me, still waging war with flesh? Absolutely. But now is there a new desire to obey him and to love him and to serve him that was not there before I knew him? Absolutely. Change of behavior is simply the overflow of a changed heart. We, we've preached this scripture a million times, and we preach it a million times one. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart because it determines the course of your life. One translation says, because it is the wellspring of life. What does that mean, a wellspring? That whatever's in the well is going to show up in the water. Whatever my heart affections are, that's going to show up in my life. That's why a change of behavior does not work. Listen, the only thing that a change of behavior produces is pride in the person who thinks they're doing it right and shame in the person who knows they're not. But when Christ saves me, he reoriented the affections of my heart. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people over the years who've struggled with the assurance of salvation. Listen, if you're here You've ever doubted your salvation or wonder if am I really saved? Would you just raise your hand honestly before God? Would you raise your hand? My hand's up too. Do you know what the greatest short source of assurance should be? Let Jesus answer. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, which is pretty important if you're gonna be a Christian, right? <laughs> if you love me, obey me. But here's the key, it's, not, it's obedience driven by love, not guilt or not fear. It's not obedience to earn righteousness or to earn God's favor. It's obedience out of a desire of a heart that has new motivation. So how to know that I'm saved? There's a pattern, not perfection. There's a pattern of obedience in my life, and it's not grit your teeth, and I don't want to do this, and I hate doing this. You know, it's duty, not delight. It's Jesus Christ has reoriented the affections of my heart. One old country preacher said this. He said, hey, when I got saved, my want-tos changed. I want to serve the Lord. Listen, when I got saved, it was a radical change of desire. I wanted to be at church every time the doors were open. I wanted to study the Bible. I wanted to serve. The desire to party and be popular and be liked. Sports were no longer the most important thing in my life. All of a sudden, I want to I wanted to date a girl who loved Jesus. Now, full disclosure, I wanted to look good while serving him. Amen. 
Like I said, Lord, give me a lady who is holy and a hot tamale. Amen? And he did. <laughs> Nothing Tasha enjoys more than being recognized publicly at church. Don't let her fool you. <laughs> and so why did Paul's life change? Not to please the Lord, but because Jesus had transformed the affections of his heart. And Paul went from, not I have to do this, to Paul said, I get to spend my life doing this. And so you may say, hey, I got saved at a young age. There's not a, there's not a huge change in my life. Listen, any time that you have a desire to please the Lord, to submit, to deny yourself, to submit to someone else's lordship of your life, that is a radical transformation of a heart that naturally wants to go its own way. And so Paul testifies to that in verses 14 and 15. And so we've been talking overnight. Listen, I hope we're getting to the end of the series. We're getting to the end. Some of you like, praise God, right? Started this when I got home from the war. So I, I hope God is growing your heart to be on mission with him. So you know how to be a good missionary? You, you don't have to debate. You don't have to study everything and prove everybody's wrong. You're right. Paul, listen, the greatest person on the planet who knew the law, he didn't do that when, when he's pressed for his life. You know how to be a good missionary? Join God in the movement? Just tell anyone who will listen about the man in the middle cross and what he's done for you. Was Paul effective? Verse 22 says this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should be not allowed to live. You say, well, Paul wasn't successful. Listen, you know what success in evangelism is? Faithfulness. You're not responsible for the results. That's the work of the Spirit. Just faithfully telling people, Man on the middle cross said, I can come, and you can too. Just telling people over and over what Christ has done in your life. And the old hymn writer was right when he said this, though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. And the man on the middle cross says, you can come. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your heads bowed this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions in light of what we've encountered in the scriptures today. First question is this. Can you say with integrity that your life has been changed by Jesus Christ? Not in your behavior, but is there an unnatural desire inside of you to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Not, not so you can be saved, but because you are saved. So has Jesus made a change in your life? Or did you just repeat a prayer and just hope that one day you'll wake up in heaven? If you're here today and you say, you know what, when I, when I heard you talk about life before Christ and describe how Paul and you met Christ, I don't have a story like that. I don't even have a place or a season 
And I can't say with integrity that outside of going to church that the desires of my heart are any different because I know Jesus. Listen, if that's you here today and, you, and everybody else thinks you're saved, don't worry about what they think. Receive Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to Him. Confess your sins and receive Him today as your Lord and Savior. Second thing I want to ask you is this. If you're here and you're genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ, would you just pray right now and say, Lord, this very week, open up my eyes to opportunities to testify of what Jesus has done in my life to people around me. Would you pray that right now? Would you pray that God would providentially and sovereignly orchestrate your week this week and your relationships and your encounters? Would you have spiritual eyes to look at people instead of being in a hurry? And would you pray right now and say, Lord, give me boldness, not to argue, not to debate, but to clearly and humbly tell people the difference that Jesus has made in my life. God, I'm humbled that you allow us the privilege of joining you in the movement of the gospel. And God, we don't do it to earn your favor because we feel like we have to. God, we're humbled that we get to. God, you've reoriented the desires and affections of our heart to want to please Jesus. And so God, find us faithful. God, help us not to be in such a hurry and so distracted in the lives that we're living and living them at a pace that we don't even realize divine appointments all around us. Help us to trust in the work of the Spirit. Help us to trust in the power of the gospel. And let us faithfully and consistently tell people what Jesus has done for us. God, we're grateful. The work is not done. Though millions have come, there's still room for more. So may we tell them about the man on the middle cross. In his name we pray. Amen.